How's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 179, and it takes place over FaceTime. Uh, I got to chat with Lang Martin Jr. He's a hit songwriter. He's written cuts for Elvis and Reba, Trisha Yearwood, just to name a few, uh, exceptional writer. He just wrote a book called Permission to Fly, and that book is actually inspired by an essay he wrote that ended up in the New York Times Modern Love column. And I'll, I'll put a link to that on heyhumanpodcast.com because it's a really cool essay. Um, Lang is a really interesting guy. He's had quite the adventure, adventurous life. He worked for Benny Goodman. Um, he has been chased by serial killers. At least I think they were serial killers. The stories he has are really, really quite incredible. Um, again, reading his book, Permission to Fly, every page I turned, I thought, really? Really? I, there was a lot of that going on. It, his life has been just one open door into another wormhole of wildness. You know, I would consider him very blessed, but I think part of that is because he's willing to take leaps and you got to take the leaps, right? To get to the, to get to the good stuff. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. So definitely check out the links page at heyhumanpodcast.com to uh, learn more about Lang and to get his book and check out that article and stuff and hear songs that he has done. Uh, usual stuff, social, when I say done, I mean written, songs he has written. I suppose I need to clarify that. Um, social media stuff, Hey Human Podcast is on Instagram and Facebook. Susan Ruthism, S-U-S-A-N-R-U-T-H-I-S-M, is on Facebook, Twitter, and, uh, what did I miss, Instagram? I think so. Anyway, you, you get the drill. It's out there. There's stuff everywhere. Uh, SusanRuth.com if you want to learn more about me and my performances or my art or my music. And speaking of performances, see that nice segue? On November 5th, I am going to be hopping up on stage with some really talented people uh, at Second City Hollywood for the Office Hours show. So that's going to be super cool. If you are in the neighborhood, please come check that out. Uh, rate and review Hey Human on iTunes. And what else? I mentioned the links page, which is at heyhumanpodcast.com. Also on the website is the Amazon portal. If you shop Amazon and you do so through the Amazon portal there on that front page, it really helps Hey Human. And that would be awesome. That's pretty much it. Uh, let's get into it. Uh, Lang Martin, The Adventurer, Permission to Fly is the book. Thanks for listening, everybody. Here we go. Lang Martin, welcome to Hey Human. Well, thank you, Susan. It's <laughs> such a treat to be here. It took us a couple tries between the two of us, didn't it? I did, yeah, but we solved it. We did. Between uh, house repairs here at my place and, and you traveling, it, the schedule's got a little cattywampus, but here we are. All right, uh, let's get right into it. You wrote a book called Permission to Fly. I did. Yeah, and it's uh, it's all about your uh, coming up hood, your childhood, and 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 growing up adventures. Right. Well, it's called permission to fly because that's what my mom gave me at an early age. She she sent me and my rampant curiosity loose to explore, make mistakes. When I and when I did make mistakes, she she did not rescue me. She convinced me instead that I could rescue myself and that turned out to be kind of the key to to finding out who the heck I am. That's a really empowered stance of parenting, I think. I think so too. She was she had a lot of guts, she had a lot of common sense. I think she also knew that or she believed that I could sort of handle it. You know, she wasn't just reckless by any means. She just thought this kid's okay. He's fine. Let him go, you know. And I would have at at quite a young age I had, you know, adventures and experiences outside the home which really translated later on to being able to sort of take care of myself and because at a young age you know I'd have these sort of childhood mishaps you know flat tire on your bike 10 miles from home kind of thing and you know you figure it out you know you don't call your mother you get a ride somewhere you go to a gas station see what has to happen and, you know uh, it, it just turned out to be very helpful 
Always. You also grew up in a time where I feel that figuring things out on one's own was paramount because you didn't have cell phones. You didn't have a way to get the message out immediately. You really did have to solve things on your own. Yeah, yeah, no, that's very true. How does that affect how you parent your own children? Uh, Well, I think we were very much that way. My wife uh, was a fabric designer and very successful one in New York. So she had the sort of artistic whatever, the the, the thing of paying attention to feelings and stuff that that you kind of have if you're, you know, a writer or, or whatever she was doing also. And so we both felt that trusting our kids and convincing them that they could take care of themselves was... Uh, the, the thing to do because we do it gradually you know initially it's just around your you know immediate neighborhood around your house or whatever um, and then it expands and as they go out and they high school and like Tucker our middle child was 16 and he had his license just a few weeks and he wanted to go to I think Apple Valley in Wisconsin was where he went was a venue for Bob Dylan he was per- performing there and I Tucker went up there, George drove up there in his car, but he also took a little stove with him and he cooked the grilled sandwiches and stuff for people and sold them and made money and, you know, he, he just learned to fend for himself and, and you know, we, we, we did something when, when the kids got older, uh, when they were teenagers, after high school, we told them that we would give them each one plane ticket anywhere in the world once a year. The, the key to that was the, the corollary to it was that they had to supply all the rest of the money and you know uh, food or car rental if there was or trains or whatever else so we would give them a ticket but once they got there everything else was up to them and uh, Tucker took probably the most advantage of it although they all did uh, he went only to really dangerous places he went to West Africa you know 25 years ago when it was really you know back country of turkey uh he went to russia with his high school so that was a guided trip so he's been to a lot of but they all went to wherever they wanted to go and explored and they were generally by themselves they didn't have a buddy so they i mean our youngest boy was hiking in the swiss alps and it started snowing and all all the trails suddenly were snowed over and invisible and so he was you know got a little fortunately some some German tourists or something came along who knew their way and they guided him out of there. But, you know, these little sort of shaky hair-raising things that come up when you're young make an impression on you because you see, oh, well, I I got out of that. I figured it out. And it comes in handy when you're older. Yeah, I do feel that the biggest disservice many parents, and I don't have children, so really I'm talking out my butt, but I do, just as an observer, I think that the greatest disservice parents do with their kids is to not let them fail. Yeah, failing is just critical because I know a million entrepreneurial people and they fail. Not everything works and they never even mention it. I'm telling you, I'll have lunch with them and then they'll say, you know, last year I did this and such and then this or that happened. And they, man, they didn't even mention it while I was happy because they expect it. It was, you know, like in my case, pitching songs. I didn't expect everyone to record every song I ever. Most of the time I played them songs and they turned them off. I didn't like them for one reason. That's just what you expect. You're yeah. looking for the right match, you know. And with songs, I mean, I felt oh wait it's my job to bring them a song they like it's not their job to like my song that's a big difference and so all of these little attitudinal tweaks that you can do with yourself that keep you from being depressed when something doesn't work out you just know you're on the way somewhere and there isn't uh, a smooth path to anything that you really care about you know the more you care about it the harder everything gets you know like with our kids i'd say if they just want to throw the football in the in the yard that's one thing but you want to be Peyton Manning that's that's a whole different ball game you know and it's true kind of in everything you know it's real hard when you care about it did your kids ever push back on that or did you as a kid push back on that freedom because I think there's an irony in that with uh you know the the safety of feeling like something is completely taken care of versus the freedom that it's not was there pushback I honestly you know, Susan, maybe there was, but I don't remember it. They, you know, we, we made it clear that, you know, if you, you want to drive to Apple Valley or, you know, Mississippi and see a, a concert and everything, 
I mean, it's up to you. And, and we're not driving down there to help you change a tire or to, you know. And even when they had cell phones, it's just, you know, that's it's your thing, you know. I mean, if, if you're totally puzzled, you know, and you think we might be able to help, you know, that's one thing. But we're not coming down there to do it. And um, what happened? I mean, we, we just said, listen, when you walk in the room, people are going to like you because you're a decent person. So tell them what your problem is if you've got a problem. Go into a knock on a home if you're way in the woods and knock on just tell them what your problem is. They're they're going to help you, and most people will. And the ones that aren't serial killers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're not. They're not. And most most people don't expect that you are. And, uh, you know, there's a way out of just about everything. I mean, I say that, you know, I wouldn't know, really know what to do if some someone in an alley attacked me. And uh, that that I really wouldn't know what to do. But that's not generally what, what all of us are contending with as we grow up. It's usually, you know, something to do with school early on and then it's your first jobs and your first boss and and your cars that don't work beautifully and you're looking for an apartment and hassling it out when you don't have enough money for your first rents and stuff those are all you can take care of all that stuff because you know i mean if it's rent you just get more jobs or whatever you work hard. you know it i don't think we ever had i i never and, you know, I didn't feel any pushback because they kind of knew going out that it was up to them. And they they never said, hey, you're not bailing me out. They never, honest to God, they never asked to be bailed out, ever. None of them, ever. So I know a that, couple of your kids. They're very, they're very kind and uh, very thoughtful um, and very uh, measured, I would say. Measured is a good word. They don't, they, they're not saying something just to say it. You, do you know oh, what I mean? They're, they're yeah, that's of, nice, Susan. Yeah, I think that's that's certainly borne out in my experience with them. They, um, they, you can't get them to do anything they don't want to do or say anything they don't want to say, no matter what, because they'll always be fair players. But they're 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 not gonna. Uh, you know, gloss it over. Yeah, I I trust people like that. <laughs> <laughs> in a world Good. full of uh, shim-sham people, I trust people that are, you know, don't say something unless they need to say it and don't uh, gild the lily, as it were. Yeah, thank you. Well, I, I don't think they do that. No. I hope they don't. Who knows? They don't. I don't think they do either. All right, let's get back to you. I, the first thing that struck me when reading your book, and one thing that's tricky, and I mentioned this a lot on the podcast, is when I do speak with people who have written a book, to try not to spoil the book for people that haven't read it, but still ask you questions pertinent to the book. So I'll do my right. best. Feel free to say, oh, I don't want to talk about that because I want people to read it. Yeah. So. Oh, no, there's nothing There's nothing to, to uh, divulge or to, to ruin because it's it's just a continuing story. It doesn't have a moment where you're, you're wondering, you know, oh, what, and then there's some big twist. It's just a person living and all the goods, bads, and uglies that go with it. When you really... Uh, taking chances fortunately i had a wife who has an immense amount of courage we took lots of chances and i'm sure we'll take more because you know you, to do interesting things you have to keep taking chances um, one thing i noticed about it um well the first thing i want to comment on is <laughs> your parents were nudists uh, <laughs> well on weekends they usually were yeah they would you know, as I said, they'd cook pancakes or vacuum in the nude and stuff. And once in a while, uh, neighborhood kids would... Well, we had five kids in our family, so there were lots of friends and stuff. But once in a while, kids would walk in and see my mom without any clothes, you know, or dad or whatever. And they, they just would... Sometimes they would ask first, and they look, I'm coming over there. Is your mother bare-ass? And, you know, I'd say, yeah, but I'll tell her you're coming or, you know, whatever. So... I, I ran into someone, Susan, you may remember from the book, I ran into someone not long ago who knew my sister, and I didn't know this guy, and he, when he realized that I was, you know, she was my sister, he said, did, did your parents put their clothes on yet? This this is like 30 years after he had seen them with no clothes on. How did so, that give and, you a sense of your own uh, sense of self growing up in a family where parents... Because most of the time, parents are like, put your clothes on, put your this on. You know, it's a shameful thing to be naked. So the antithesis of that, I'm curious <laughs> to know how that, that shaped you personally. I don't know. I just... My parents were... 
they were big on on being a straight shooter. That's what they were mainly. You know, if you, you, I mean, none of us. Would, I think it's fair to say none of us would ever think of lying, and we uh, just. Uh, you know, we just were on the level, and and they were totally on the, and that was what their big expectation was, and and so uh, we didn't. I didn't think of anything. They were just on the level. They they like to walk around with no clothes. But how on did that make you fine. feel? Like for your own sense, I was of so self. used to it. They uh. did it since I was like a little tiny kid. But you kids so, weren't nudists at all. No, our kids. Oh, no, no, you, no, 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 you, you no, and your none, siblings. None of the kids. I, I don't remember any of the other kids doing that. Okay. And in fact, in fact, I have one brother, my closest brother to me, who doesn't even remember that. But the reason that I know I'm not crazy is that my sister, who is the youngest, um, very much remembers it, and so <laughs> so do her friends. So hilarious! It's but, so funny. Yeah. Yeah. So you wrote about your mom having postpartum depression, and but the weird thing about, when I was reading it, it seemed like it didn't affect you really. You sort of passed in and out of it. But as an adult now, looking back, do you think you were more affected by it? Well, first of all, I was just totally crazy about my mother because she was the one who had this incredibly nourishing way about it which she just convinced me she just said Lang you're wonderful I mean just I just got the best up you know at the same time if I did something that wasn't so wonderful she had absolutely no problem saying Lang that was horrendous you don't do that you know so but the, her primary message was you're really capable you're really smart and you're just a good person and and just it it, it so there was, I, I think that helps you completely always be on the level because, you know, I always felt, well, there's really nothing I can do to disappoint her, you know, because she likes me. She believes in me. So I'm going to make sure that she never, uh, you know, that I knew never do disappoint her. There was, there was a time when I quit a job that my, my dad had gotten me, which was the most useless job I had ever heard of. I'd had a really good job that I liked one summer. And he said, I think you should try this job, which happened to be selling magazines door to door. And I tried it for two days and it was just a scam. And I just said, this is terrible, I'm not doing this. So I I quit, I was polite to the guy when I left, but I went home, told my mom I wasn't doing that anymore and I was gonna go back to the job that I had had in the first place. And she told me I was a welcher, meaning backing out of what my promise was, and I said, I'm not. I'm never promising to do anything that's sort of a scam. So yeah, I, I quit that job, and I'm never going back. And no one should do that. It's not needed. You don't have to, you know, do that to, to earn money. So yeah. so I mean, she she had her had no problem, you know, telling you what she thought. But in general, she would tell you how you can handle it rather than how she can handle it for you. You mention a moment in the book where you walk in on her and she's on the floor. And she and she's very sad. Do, do you yeah, remember? Yeah. Pardon? Yeah. Yes. She. She. Uh, she. <laughs> it was when I first begun writing songs, and I used to try all my new lyrics out on her to see if they made sense or if I lost her anywhere. And I walked into her room one day. She was lying on the floor, and I said, "Mom, what's wrong?" And she said, "I don't know. I can't get up." And and I said why not? She said, I don't know, there's just some, so I, I leaned down with my lyrics that I'd just written and held them up in front of her and I said, well, what do you think of this first verse? <laughs> you know, and I used that as an example of how incredibly obsessed, you know, I was and often people are with whatever they're doing versus the fact that this person's lying on the floor and can't get up. So the, the obsession is a great thing because it, it, it lets you ride over all kinds of uh, disappointments, but it's got its drawbacks like that. At, you know, at whatever age I was, twenty or something, not really realizing that hey, my mom can't get up off the floor. What can I do to help her? Thinking more about my lyrics, which not a good thing in that case. But did you really come to realize that she was struggling with some stuff? And... Oh, oh well, that day she it was her back. Oh, okay. It was her back. She it was physical. It was physical. Oh, I see. Well, you know. You know, Susan, really, it, the first hint that I ever had that she was, uh, had, you know, mental issues was the day I walked in on her when she was using an egg beater in the kitchen and crying while she was making, you know, pudding or something. And she was just sobbing over this 
egg beater. And um, she said she didn't know what was wrong. And, and it was very soon after that that she went away for a year. And we had all these little kids, one of whom was either a year old or less than a year. And we had to get all these caregivers in to take care of us while my dad went to work. Um, but subsequently, years, many years later, I talked a lot with her about it. And she said that when she was very young, eight or nine, that she knew there was something wrong with her, that she just didn't view the world positively so often. She was often depressed. And she had gone to a doctor and they didn't really know what to do. And they told the parents that she was fine and all that. But later on, she had four major breakdowns as an adult. And mm -hmm. one of them was this time when I was 10. She went off for a year and there were these other four kids. You know, we've, we basically fended for ourselves so much of the time. We, none of the caregivers knew anything about children. And the, the longest running one had never had any kids. And so they, they didn't know how to handle us. So we kind of were, five of us kind of handled ourselves or whatever. Um, certainly gave me a lot of empathy for, for her, for anybody who you know, gets overwhelmed because anybody who's trying in the world <laughs> gets overwhelmed. And I have incredible empathy for people who, you know, just hit hit a point where they just, they can't hack it. And I get it. And so, but my mom never lost her sweetness, never lost her goodness, never lost her empathy for each of us. And, you know, we really missed her. Though. She, I don't. I think we didn't see her for six or eight months. And she gradually began coming home for, you know, an hour or two at a time, and gradually eased back into being in the family. But um, when she did come home, finally, my dad hired a helper for her for, you know, laundry and certain things like that. But and he was lucky. We we were lucky that he had the economics to do that because I mean if you didn't if you didn't if you hadn't had a decent economic situation and the mom went off that would have been an immense problem it was a problem anyway but it would have been immense if if he had been able to hire some people to stay with us did she talk at all about her stay in the, the wherever she went for the year you know it's funny you mentioned that I I I knew the doctor I got to know the doctor slightly who took care of her and um, uh, he was an incredibly kind guy. He eventually ended up at Harvard. At the time, he was at what's become the Weill. I don't know if you know the Weill Center connected with, I think it's with New York Hospital. It's very famous. It's in White Plains, New York. This guy, name was Munter, uh, went to Boston and Harvard, and that's where I met him. And, you know, he told me that my mom... Well, he said that, you know, my dad was an extremely strong person. He, my dad had grown up as an only child and sort of had to fend for himself and find it, figure it all out. Um, anyway, that, that he was this really strong person and that my mom clearly benefited a lot from him being a strong person. But, you know, she was, as I said in the book, she was Catholic and, and had a very, very, very strong father. And she just kept having babies and my dad really was not that bonkers over kids he was a very very good person very responsible person but he wasn't just naturally crazy about kids i i am personally naturally crazy about kids it's still not a snap although i thought it was pretty easy because we had these boys were just they were just a pleasure pretty much all the time i mean it sounds impossible but they really were um so I was just, you know, bonkers over them. But that really wasn't his thing. And uh, so he was saddled with these five kids. And, and uh, you know, just the fact that her being Catholic and, and this thing of the cheat, you know, her religion meant having all these kids. And at the same time, she, she was the one who had to take care of them all day. And so anyway, it was, you know... But but I but later on when she did have three more these major breakdowns where she had to have um, you know shock treatments shock treatment is what 
actually brought her out of it, which is kind of amazing because it sounds so kind of archaic and old-fashioned. But apparently it's coming back today because it, it really does unjumble people's thinking and it clears it out, makes them able to think clearly again. So anyway. Is that what, did she go through shock treatment during that yeah. year away? Yeah, okay. Yeah, she did. Yeah. And then they gave it to her two more times that really helped her. But when she was in her 90s, they didn't, even though she wanted them, because they said her wasn't strong enough to take it. How, how long did she live well into her 90s? Yeah, 95. Wow, that's a life. Yeah. And she was really savvy up until the last couple of years when she, um, you know, really was incredibly, you know, depressed and, and um kind of in bed all the time but, but but up till then susan i mean we used to go out for beers when she was well into her 90s and have the best time and i mean i told her at least six hundred and fifty thousand times how much i loved her how much she'd help me how much i knew that without her i'd be a dust particle i feel the same way about my wife but you know you, you just need helpers you need people who believe in you and she was always there to believe in me and no matter what happened she just totally had faith that I was a good person and I, I could handle it and I'd be fine and despite all the crashes that I had in my life she never thought I was a loser or that you know she she just she would always say things Lang that's nothing you can't handle I mean even when I was 10 that's nothing you can't handle um, with a teacher teacher hates your guts and gives you terrible grades and yells at you all the time in class and always makes an example of you Lang it's, you're stuck with each other. Work it out, you know. And, and then just gives you the message. Okay, you know, you're, now you're 18. Now you're 25. Now you're 30. Nobody's bailing you out. You okay? What's? How do you bail yourself out? How do you get out of this? And it was just incredibly helpful all along the way. Were you close with your father the same way? Less, less close to him because he wasn't really what I would call an intimate person. My mom was very intimate. I mean, we there was basically no subject off the table with her, nothing. I mean, you know, growing up and sex and uh, wet dreams and all the stuff that scares the crap out of you when you're, when you're crazy about girls and you just you don't know what to do and you're lying there in your bed at night. She always would have that one sentence that you needed. And so, but my dad was much more... Uh, you know, simple sense. I mean, I made a list one time. My wife and I made a list about 20 years ago. We were going to visit them. They'd rented a house in Georgia nearby, and we were going to go. Made a list of about 20 questions to ask him to try to bring out. The, and honestly, Susan, most of the answers were one word. You know, why Why did you leave that job in 1940, you know, uh, selling space for that baby magazine? I can't remember. Uh, or whatever and and so you, the, all the things that we thought might bring out the emotion and stuff really did he probably had them but it wasn't just something that he was naturally sharing but he made some incredibly important decisions for me that I wasn't smart enough to make for myself I didn't do well in my first year in college I didn't fail but I didn't do well and he said I'm not paying for you to go back there but what he did do was he knew I was interested in writing and he had connections at Time Magazine and he got me a job for one year as a copy boy there which was a very low level job but it put me in touch with all these brilliant people and they became my standard I did not want any longer ever in my life to work around people that weren't really really smart and so half of these people became really famous authors you know I don't know if you know Calvin Trillin um John McPhee, a uh, guy named, uh, I got in a head like 11 names. Uh, he became a big screenwriter. And I, and they were the people that when something happened in the world, I could go back and, and say, hey, tell me some background on this. So at the end of that year, when I decided I better go back to college and get more education so I can earn the right to be around these people, they were my new standard. And, and I just, I, I I'd always wanted to be surrounded by really smart people, and I was very lucky when I got to Nashville and Ray Stevens, who was an official total 1,000% genius, um, decided that he would help me, you know, learn to be a better songwriter and so on. But because all his friends were Chet Atkins and all these other geniuses, you know, so it just meant an immense amount to me to just say, God, man, these really bright people 
can teach you so much. I mean, like, I don't know if you remember from the book, but when I was like about 13, I was Benny Goodman's. Yeah, I was just going just gonna to bring that up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was his pool boy and his lawn boy. And I, later on, I drove him to concerts and stuff. And I mean, what I learned from this guy was just mind boggling. Because honestly, I mean, I was 13. I was just knocking on doors in our neighborhood. Did you know it was Benny I, Goodman when you met him? or? Um, I, I don't I don't think I did. And I, did, I wouldn't have known that he was a famous person. But what happened was our, our very rural Connecticut neighborhood after the war, Second World War, began to get kind of fancy. It had been just plumbers and carpenters and normal people. And uh, then after the war, when the country started getting richer, we lived in Connecticut. We were about an hour from New York City. And it was pretty there. And these wealthy people said, hey, you know, I want to buy a summer house, a weekend house around in this sort of rural spot and get away and, and I can get there in an hour. So they did. And so all of a sudden, all these famous people started living all around us, and including the uh, the Salzburgers that own, own and still own the New York Times. But Benny Goodman and who else? Uh, Gene Tunney was the heavyweight champ of the world at one point. Um, Vivian Vance, who else? Uh, Peter Goldmark invented the long playing record. I mean, I was just weeding his garden. He invented the friggin' long playing record. God almighty, this is incredible, you know? So anyway, from Benny Goodman, though, the dramatic examples of what I learned. First day I went to work there, over the top, I'm, I'm kneeling in a bed of roses, weeding, garden, and over the top of his apple trees, I hear the sound of a clarinet, and it's, it's just scales, like da 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 over and over and over. Every single day I went to work there that he was home. That's what I hear. I file away the fact that the most famous clarinetist in the world practices every day. So it was little stuff like that. And then I don't know if you remember the story where I he's throwing this big pool party. I don't know if you remember that. I but do. Who tell it? It's big, great. Yeah, he's throwing this big pool party. These famous people flying in from all over the country. So uh, I'm preparing for weeks and I'm the day comes, I've got the lawn mowed, the garden's weeded, the pool deck is swept, and the last thing to do is to vacuum the swimming pool. Well, I vacuum the pool, and when I finish, it's glistening, you know, glimmer, glowing, worthy of the Beverly Hills Hotel, until I go back to turn off the vacuum system, accidentally reverse it, and fire back into the pool all the dirt I had just vacuumed out, and probably some from weeks before. And the pool is black polluted and I have to go tell him that I have basically wrecked his party and so I knock on his door bring him out and show him and after some swearing and I can't believe it we got to get someone to fix this and everything he finally just calms down and he, he looks at me and he says Lang you know what I think people are going to laugh their asses off when they see this it's going to be a great party and he puts his hand on my shoulder and he said hey I got to get upstairs and comb my hair and no kidding that one lesson jumped back at me so many times as we were raising our boys. The message being, he didn't need to tell me that I had screwed up his friggin' party. I already knew that. What he needed to tell me was that he still loved me, so to speak. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that, that everything was going to be fine. And that is really what all of us basically need when we make giant mistakes, whether we're a kid or, or a person. We already know we've made the mistake. What we need to know is where we go from here and how we get there. And he was so instrumental in telling me that. My mom also had that. But this was important because it was this famous guy outside the family. Yeah, absolutely. So, wow, so anyway. that's incredible. Um, one of the stories in the book that stuck out to me was your possible abduction by serial killers. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that was pretty amazing. It was, I was, it was, I was hitch. I decided, so after meeting Benny Goodman and all of these, you know, famous people, I, I just, it was very exciting to me because they, their worlds were so different. I mean, in the case of Benny, he'd have all these famous musicians over in his pool house and we'd, he'd, he'd have me and five other people and they'd play. And I thought, you know, this is exciting. So, between my freshman and sophomore year of college, I decided I would hitchhike completely around the United States, like north, south, east, west, 7,500 miles. I wanted to 
you know, see everything. I wanted to see what, what does a real cactus look like, a real desert, a real rocky mountain, you know. I wanted to go in the diners, hear the different accents, and, you know, maybe work on a ranch a little while and make some money. So um, one day, with a big hug from my mom and 47 bucks, which sounds ridiculous in my pocket, it was 1962. That was seemed like a lot of money to me. Uh, my mom dropped me off at the entrance to the Merritt Parkway in Connecticut, and I was gone for two months. And uh, that trip taxed a few of my coping skills, and you're referring to an incident where these two guys picked me up in the middle of the night and Missoula, outside Missoula, Montana, pickup truck told me I could ride in the back of it to Missoula, which was about 30 miles. But it was also 30 degrees outside, and I was in the back of it. And after riding five miles or something, they, they told me I could ride inside with them, but they wanted me to sit in the middle in between them. And when they got out of the car, they were clearly had a little beer, and they'd been smoking in the smoke wafts out of the truck and I was not dying to sit between these guys but I was freezing in the middle of nowhere so they also stopped one other time and, and they just jumped out but when I jumped out thinking that I was saving my life just they just started taking a leak you know pretending that I was like a moron for being so concerned but then we got back in the car and this truck and this time I sat by the door and we'd been driving for a little while and the only light in the you know in the cab was the light of the dashboard and a dead silence and it was just terrifying to me and suddenly the, the one guy yells hey hey let's see about this boy and they pull over off the road skidding sideways and i opened my door rolled out of the truck and just ran over these outcroppings and just threw the grass as fast as I could. And then they start sweeping this light looking for me. Um, can you see me, Susan? I, yeah. I just missed it. Yeah, okay. I can see you. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I just laid down in the grass as fast as I could. And they kept sweeping this light and telling me they were going to come and get me. And one, one of the guys yelled, you all done but the fun, son. And I thought, oh, my God, what are they talking about? And... Uh, you know, every time the light would sweep over me, I would jump up and run farther away. And, you know, uh, finally they, I just heard the truck start and they backed up and they backed off and they left. And I just lay there in the grass and looked up at the, you know, seven million stars in the sky and tried to compose myself. And um, I gradually got up and walked out to the highway and just, waited again for the hint of headlights coming in the opposite direction from the one they'd gone in but uh, that that was not for a, an older person <laughs> that was for you got to be young for that stuff and i i just it's always amazed that i don't know what they were going to do to me or for me but uh, i can't imagine it was anything good it sounds like yeah, it, it was nothing good and they were a little nuts and and it was in the total middle of nowhere. But, you know, I really, I did go about 7,500 miles. And I had a few scary things. That was the scariest. One was a couple that was completely drunk, completely polluted. And their car was waving all over the road. That was scary. But nothing like these guys who I didn't know if they had guns or what their deal was. Yeah, I think that they had no good intention. Yeah, I sure. think you're right. Yeah. How did, uh, let's talk about your wife. You met her, uh, and that, you knew instantly that she was the person. Yeah, I did. I, her brother had been my best friend in college, and he later on asked me to be the best man in his wedding. And the day I drove in, a couple days before the ceremony, and saw his sister through their screen door, she was wearing one of those, you, you wouldn't remember, but there was a, a style of dress at the time called Empire, which meant that the the sort of the waist was right under the bust line and, and, the, and the dress would sort of hang down. Anyway, she was wearing this orange dress in that style and I just thought, and she was so beautiful and so tan and so slim and calm looking and I thought, oh my God, that's exactly what I need, you know? And by some miracle, she liked me too, which is, incredible so we've now been married for 54 years but as i said the basis a lot of the basis of the story was half of halfway through our 
our 54 years, she was crippled in a car accident. And uh, so she's a paraplegic. She's you know, been in a wheelchair now for 26 or 7 years. But the crazy part is, Susan, we have a fabulous life despite that. We've gone anywhere we ever wanted to go, other countries. And, um, we can go up people's front steps and she's tough she's very strong and we both want to do things we want to go places and whether it's the beach or somebody's house for dinner or you know paris or somewhere like that and i mean we've gone in places we we went in and we busted our tail to get to a an indian restaurant in london one time (laughs) that guy wouldn't let us in he said he didn't allow wheelchairs in his restaurant so i mean there's crazy stuff that happens but in general, most people will knock themselves out to help us, and we often need help in uh, one kind or another. I mean, Linda, when she first had her accident, Susan, if you can believe this, she had these spasms. They were so powerful, they would bolt her right out of the wheelchair. So she would be going down the sidewalk by herself and just get fired out of the wheelchair onto the sidewalk. And she would you know, have to ask someone to pick her up. The most amazing version of that happened and on that day when she was coming out of the shower, she was in, she has a special shower chair that she has to use to, to take a shower. And the spasm bolted her out of the chair onto the floor, and she couldn't reach her cell phone. She couldn't, you know, get up. She couldn't do it. And so about, after about an hour, the UPS man knocked on the door downstairs, and she called and said, will you please come and pick me up? So, so he comes up, and there she is lying there with no clothes on the floor. And, he picks her up and puts her in the back in the wheelchair. But uh, she is so, you know, tough. I mean, she just said she didn't bat an eyelash. She said, hey, I got back in the chair. And the guy was great, gave me his cell phone number if that ever happened again, that he'd help me because he knew that, you know. Anyway, you know, so there's basically nothing except playing tennis and riding bikes and stuff that we can't do that we want to do. Did, it, it's to me extraordinary when I read about that because in reality, um, statistically speaking, the chances of you getting a divorce after an accident like that is pretty high. Yeah, the doctor told us it was 80%. That he told them every Thursday or something, they had these meetings for all the people in the, whatever it would have been, paraplegic ward or whatever, that, that people who were crippled and there were about eight of us and sometimes the people would bring their husbands their wives and i always went because i i moved up there the accident happened in pennsylvania i just moved up there for 11 weeks so i was always at these meetings but he would tell us you know you know 80 percent of you are going to be divorced after honestly i never paid attention to that for 14 seconds because i knew linda my wife could think she nothing was wrong with her brain so i knew as long as we could talk that that was our relationship i mean we're friends before anything else and and i knew that if we could you know do this together and talk about it together that we would figure out how to do it and, and we have and, but a lot of it is i mean susan her adjustment was like 1100 times more than mine mine was pretty strong but hers i mean she's the one who has to do all this stuff sure and as i mentioned in the in the book i mean just her getting dressed i mean i promise you if anyone were to watch her get dressed she said well how do you do that and initially it did take her 45 minutes to get dressed because i mean her body is still damp from the shower you know she's only moves from the chest up you know just her shoulders and her arms she can't adjust her legs or anything but without you know picking them up and moving so but now she can get dressed and I mean, I, I used to say four minutes, but it's less. I think she can get dressed in two minutes now, which is just totally amazing. But she can also do, she she drives. She's We've got a car that's got hand controls. And I, I promise you, I don't think I could do this one time. She rolls to the car, slides into the driver's seat, t- takes the cushion off her chair, folds up her chair, tucks the chair into the seat behind her seat I mean it's just ridiculous when you see her do it and goes off and you know gets her hair cut or something I mean she's just totally amazing and 
one of the proofs that makes me know how amazing it is is that there are 10,000 new people a year who are confined to wheelchairs. We go everywhere, and we almost never see anyone in a wheelchair. And, you know, that includes the movies or a restaurant or just walking down the street in New York. But, um, like, a few months ago, we were in New York, and we walked 304 blocks. Well, that sounds totally impossible, but in two days, New York is interesting. And so you just keep walking. You have coffee, go to a bookstore, see something, you know, worthwhile, a museum or a park or something like that. And at the end of the day, you know, you've walked 140, 150 blocks because it's just what oh, it yeah. does. New York is and a 10-mile-a-day town for sure. It, it really is. Yeah. And, but it's all done in these tiny increments, so it's not like someone says, okay, you know, you have two hours to get, you know, 150 blocks. It isn't. It's just short. So, but, you know, I mean, yes, I do the pushing, but Linda gets every, every time there's a cut, you know, sidewalk, there's you know, in the cuts in the sidewalk about every five feet. Yeah. And those clicks just go through over. And then there are none of the curb cuts in New York City for one place are very smooth. So you're, she's getting bounced and bounced and bounced. So so she's putting up with all that. But the, the what we get from that is these great trips and this excitement of, you know, seeing these, these places and, you know, Fenway Park or, you know, the Red Sox, Yankees or whatever, we can go to that stuff. And, you know, the, yeah. the byproduct of all the effort and annoyance is that <laughs> we get to do this stuff. I'm trying to make the camera so I'm seeing. Um, anyway, so what's crazy is that we just think we're really lucky. Well, <laughs> we absolutely. Think we're, we think I mean, we're having a great life. The fact that she didn't die in the accident is extraordinary. I mean, you're right. Yeah. I mean, I went, I went to see, I mean, the car, we have pictures of the car, the car just totally mangled, and she was hanging upside down when the, you know, the wrecking crew gets there with the acetylene torches and the uh, power tools and everything to get her out of the thing. She's just hanging by her seatbelt upside down, unconscious. Yeah. Our kid was in the, youngest boy was in the car with her. He was 15, he was thrown out of the car. But when he saw her, after he sort of gathered himself, he thought she was dead. And he, he went out to the side of the road and, and flagged down a car. No one would stop, of course, because it, in the middle of nowhere and it was night. But finally, some guy did stop. It was the early days of cell phones of 19, 1993. And he did have a cell phone. And he called, you know, got the helicopter and the ambulance for him and all this stuff but uh you know an amazing adventure for him and he's really unable even at this late date to talk about that night very much without he can't really talk about it so we don't really ask him about it but yeah i imagine it was very traumatic for him and he's lucky and the fact that he was ejected i that he still has his life is extraordinary oh god what a miracle i mean the doctor was so unbelievably skilled when he spoke with me when i when i got him on the phone and didn't know anything about it in the first place the number that had been left at the motel where we were supposed to uh, spend the night it's kind of a miracle that they found it what they did was after they got my wife to the hospital they rifled through her purse and they found the confirmation for the hotel and they called there thinking maybe i would be there and the number they left for me to call when i got there when i reached them was the chaplain so <laughs> the first person was you know i'm the chaplain i thought oh god but anyway she quickly connected me with the surgeon who filled me in but he was so skilled at telling me he said um i said how's my family and he said well your son is fine he's got a couple of nicks and stuff but your wife has been roughed up a little bit and i said well like what and he told me that you know her vital signs were strong and that at the moment her legs were unable to move and i said well can she think and he said yeah she can think her brain's fine and i, and I said well then we're fine you know and, I, and it was true how was it trying to relearn intimacy with somebody who has no feeling below the below the <laughs> Well, I mean sex as we know it is 150,000% gone 
but Susan, I don't really know what happens to people, but I kind of felt like one of those birds that, you know, my, my feathers are red, but now that it's fall, they're brown and no one can see me. Something happened in my body and hers too, where all of a sudden our sex drive wasn't as powerful. Our love drive, our cuddly drive, so to speak, was just as powerful, but the sex drive was vastly diminished and that is just a total miracle and I just don't know how in the world nature does that but they did it on us and it's amazing because because you know we just just you know usually fall asleep either holding hands or with our arms around each other and uh, I don't know <laughs> it's just still seems like a great life which again is a total miracle it's wonderful, and I'm I'm glad that she didn't have any brain damage. Thank God. And you wrote about, um, in in fact, it went quite viral. An article in the Modern Love, uh, the New York Times. Yes, yes, yeah. Well, after I think it was about 15 years after the accident, I kept trying to put it into words, really just mostly for myself. But just to how would I describe, you know, that night and what what it's been like since and stuff and it took a long time it took a couple of years i would go to this coffee shop here the frothy monkey and just try to type this story and um i walked i walk and have for the last 50 years uh, three times a week with a guy who's a vanderbilt professor and he's the total whiz kid uh and so when i got it what the story in what i thought was good shape I said, would you please take a look at this? And he read it and he said, Lang, this is beautifully written, but unless you tell me why it was hard, why it's the nitty gritty of it, you know, I don't really feel it because I can say I had a hard time or a hard this or that. I don't know why it's any different from yours. So you've got to tell me. And that was when I, I wrote all the nitty gritty. I wrote about the bowel movements and the, the lack of sex and the, the simple discomforts like your your you know uh, you know the remote falls off the, the bed in the morning when you reach for your glasses and you can't reach it so you can't turn on the TV and you're just locked there uh, all, all these the, the realities of it and once I did that Susan the story totally came to life and I was reading the modern love column one day and at the very bottom it said if you think you have a modern love story you know, email it to this address. So I said, well, that's what our story is. It's modern love. And I fired it to this guy. And like a few hours later, he, he wrote back and he said, I'm going to print this. And and I thought, well, this is definitely the most exciting thing that's happened in a hell of a long time. And he said, this story is fantastic. It's going to get enormous response. And they printed it. And it did get this incredibly overwhelming response from like all over the world. And it was at a time that my you know, enthusiasm for writing songs, which I felt so strongly for, you know, 40 plus years, really was dimming. I didn't, wasn't waking up with a song in my heart, so to speak, every day like you have to. I wasn't as obsessed with it as I, I knew I had been when I, getting my, in my best uh, production years. And so, uh, when all of this response came in from the New York Times story, I just kept writing. I just said, this is the most wonderful feeling because I felt as though I were making contact with families and what I call love-based people. And, and so I just kept writing. And it took, I wrote it, it took 10 years. Um, you know, and when I was finished, I, it took a long time to know that I was finished because I would keep waking up for, after seven years, eight years, nine years, ten years, waking up saying, oh, I need to add this, or this isn't clear, or I need to acknowledge this or that person, or whatever. So it took a long time to actually be finished. But after ten years, which was just earlier this year, I said, this, I, I wasn't waking up with any new things that I thought should go in it. So I knew it was finished. And, uh, you know, I mean, there was just as a crazy this is amazing i had incredibly bright people read this thing and i said fine any mistakes you can find in this and they all did sent me their mistakes then i took it back to my vanderbilt whiz kid friend who had made a life of reading stories and correcting them he found three yellow page 
pages of mistakes and they were really impossible mistakes to find like like a one comma extra in in a set of quotes because i you know made him say i mean you could scan the page with your eye and never spot this oh yeah there's nothing like a wonderful editor they make all the difference in the world and this is for the book so what happened was the modern love article was the catalyst to write the book permission to fly absolutely yeah without that yeah and I'll put a link to the article on heyhumanpodcast.com so people can go and read it because it's still out there. Yeah, it's called it's called In a Charmed Life, uh, A Road Less Traveled. But if you just Google my name, Lang Martin Jr., spelled L-A-Y-N-G, very weird spelling, <laughs> M-A-R-T-I-N-E, Jr., um, the article will pop up. Yeah. If you just, or if you just start In a Charmed Life, sure. it'll come up. And I, like I said, there I keep a links page on the website, so it'll be there too. Right, let's talk Thank about Elvis you. really quick because that's an interesting story. Yeah. Elvis was probably the biggest um, musical and or emotional awakening of awakening of my whatever teen year, whatever year would have been fifty six. I was about fourteen, but I was riding to the movies with my seventh grade girlfriend, and my mom was driving us and. Uh, Heartbreak Hotel came on the radio and I just heard that sound I heard that voice and I I just leaned forward to my mom I said mom what is that please turn it up and, and the DJ said that was Elvis Presley young man from Tupelo Mississippi with Heartbreak Hotel and I said in the book but a switch flipped in my heart and it never went off and it didn't because if I hear that record or Elvis right now it just completely freaks me out but um, I never thought of writing songs ever, even though as much as I loved records and I had every record known to man growing up. But it wasn't until I was about to be a senior in college that I was painting a house one summer and all my friends had been interning for Merrill Lynch and big companies and stuff and they were really excited about it. And I thought, God, man, all those companies would hate my guts. They'd fire me in an hour. What am I going to do? How am I going to earn a living? And I had my radio by me while I was painting this house and I heard a song that I loved and I thought I wonder if I could ever write a song and for some odd reason I thought yeah I can write a song I can do it and I wrote this song and I I knew I had to make a demo of it and um, I also read all the music magazines so I knew in New York City which was close to us where all these guys hung out and it was a bar called the turf bar while i was going to college at columbia university which is just up the street from this bar or you know 50 blocks so i took the subway down to this bar and i didn't have the guts to go in there the first two or three days that i went in but i finally found the guts and i went in and asked if i i just found some guys that kind of weird looking guys i figured well they must be songwriters they were so i told them that i'd written a song but it didn't I didn't play an instrument. Where could I hire some musicians? And they said, well, hey, how does this song have have music if, if you don't play anything? And I said, well, I just sing it. They said, in the air? And I said, yeah, just in the air. And they laughed. I thought that was hysterical. But they told me where to go make my demo. And for 80 bucks, I made a demo. And I thought, well, this is perfect for Elvis. And I went home, looked at my Elvis records, and found the business info that's always listed in the publisher information. Connected me with a company that had an office in New York called Hill and Range. And I went up there with my little demo and played it for him and said I thought it was for Elvis. And the guy said, well, I don't think it's for Elvis, but um, it might be for these guys. And anyway, it just started on my taking the songs around in New York in between my classes. But when I got to Nashville, there were there was an address that people sent songs to. So anything that I thought was close, I started sending it to this address, and I never heard anything. But one day, after I'd been in Nashville about, I don't know, five or six years, I sat down next to a very famous publisher by the name of Bob Beckham, and he published Chris Christopherson and Burnin' Love and a bunch of fantastic records and he knew that I was knocking myself out pitching songs and getting I got a lot of records recorded myself 
And he said, Lang, you work your ass off. If you have a song for Elvis, bring it to me and I'll get it to the producer, which was an impossible thing to do. And everyone wanted this line of communication that he had with the producer, but nobody had it, just him. I brought him this song. Uh, <laughs> he called, the, the producer heard it, called up Ray Stevens, who was my publisher, and said that Elvis was going to go crazy for the song. Three or four months passed. Susan, I never heard another word. And then again on the street, I heard that Elvis was again looking for songs. I took the song back to this man. And he, his secretary called me about a half an hour later and said, Lang, I think Elvis has already recorded this song. And I said, well, that's impossible because I would know. And she said, let me check. Called back. 30 seconds later and said yeah he recorded it gave me the date October of the previous year and he said it's done and I just I just couldn't believe it I mean honestly as much as I need the money to to keep living everything the payoff was that this guy that I'd idolized had listened to me singing my demo and learned my song learned, learned my songs listening to me and made a record of it and that just seemed totally impossible. But anyway, they put it out as a single. It was literally the last new song he ever recorded because when my song reached number one on the country charts, he died a, a day or two after it reached number one. The song Way Down. Way Down. Way, way on down. Way on down. Um, so anyway. it hit number one and he passed away. Yeah. What happened was that, you, you probably know this, but you can find out the songs that are going to be or how they're going to be ranked the next week in Billboard, like like today's Tuesday. You could call up Billboard today, and you could find out what's going to be number one next week in Billboard. And so I had a friend who called up. He was a promotion guy, and he found out that my song was going to be number one next week. So it was, I think it was Tuesday, actually. And then I think it was Thursday that I was playing tennis in Rhode Island on vacation. I got a phone call at the tennis court that, that Elvis had died, and... You know, it was just beyond belief. The very last chance in the world to ever get a song recorded by this guy. The most famous singer who ever lived, I think, in probably anybody's estimation. The, the arc of that story is so fantastic to think that at 14 or, you know, however, in seventh grade, you were you were like, this is going to be my life. I want to do this. This has inspired me. And then how old were you when the song came out? Well, let's see, 77, I would have been 35. Man. So, yeah. So, yeah, the idea that however many years later that would be, say, 21 years later, I'm sitting in that recording studio in Nashville listening to the mix my song with Elvis Presley singing, and I just thought, this is more impossible than is even dream upable, you know? It's a great lesson in perseverance. You say something in the book, I wrote it down, I quoted it. It's, uh, I keep planting stuff till something lives. Yeah, yeah, and you know, so that's, Susan, it's just amazing that you noticed that one line because I have thought about that so many times, that one simple line, because that really seems so often to be the key to, but I was referring at that time to this garden that I had planted near linda's elevator shaft at our house in rhode island um just just this eight foot square garden and every year um during the winter the the ocean would come in and swell of swell up and flood a few of these plants and a bunch of stuff would die so that every spring i have to replant what had died but uh, i gradually learned the things that wouldn't die and so, but I did write that line in there and I thought, God, that applies to everything. I just keep planting stuff until something lives. Yeah. And that is so much the key to life because most things probably don't live, but something will. And if you just keep slamming at it, keep planting, those, keep planting, yeah, keep planting, Susan. Yeah. That's so, I'm so glad you mentioned that. Thank you for mentioning that. Yeah. It really stood out to me as a metaphor for your entire existence, really. And well, all and all of our existences. I think yes, it's easy. I, think it is, I do think you're right. It yeah. applies to everybody. We get bogged down so much in the daily minutia and we think all these things thinking, well, what's, what's, it's easy to get into your head of what's the point of it all. And then one little thing changes everything and you never it know does. what I, that I is. Think, 
I think it's so important to remember, I know it has been for me, not that many fantastic things have to happen. It's not like you say, the, like with the breadcrumbs, that every one of those breadcrumbs has to draw a fish or something. They don't. Just one, once in a while. And, and then if you, you know, if you love grilling your hamburgers and your friends and the sunshine and stuff, you know, you've got chance every day to have a really great life. Every, everything you do doesn't have to work. It's not going to work. You can't be surprised that most of it's not going to work, but some of it will. And, and the odds go up. I mean, this is so hokey, but I did tell our kids that, you know, just imagine in baseball, instead of getting three swings, you've got as many swings as you had the guts and energy to take, do you think you'd get more hits? Well, duh, you would. Yeah. So it's just a, it's so hokey sounding, but God, it, it really applies to everything, you know? It's true, it's and baseball cheap. is a great metaphor because a baseball great has probably missed far more balls than he's hit. Oh, God, that's so true. Many more strikeouts than... Yeah. Absolutely, but the greatest of all time have have yes. still managed to get a few in there <laughs> yes exactly exactly yeah lang this has been such a pleasure thank you i want everyone to go read permission to fly and also just check out songs you've written and uh, i'm gonna again on the links page on heyhumanpodcast.com i'm gonna put a whole bunch of stuff about you so it'll be easy to find you well, thank you. And if any of you, and if you read Permission to Fly and like it, I would love it if you'd write a, a review on Amazon. It's got about 70 um, five-star reviews right now, and I'd love to have yours. I'd love to have yours, Susan, if you ever okay, have a Okay, I'll have, I'd be happy to do that. Um, uh, yeah, and how can people find you just in general on social media and such? Well, I have a website, langmartinjr.com, and um, anybody who emails me, I answer. Wonderful. Lang, thank yeah, you Susan, so you much. Are you are a total ace, and I thank you so much. You, you're, you're not only a fantastic interviewer, but you're enormously persistent because we had lots of fits and starts to get this together, and you stuck with it, and we made it happen. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Please give my love to your family. Thank you. Take care of right. yourself. Bye. Bye, Susan. Bye, everybody. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes. Thank you. Bye.